This week on Indivisible Westchester, the podcast, State Senator Alessandra Biaggi. She talks about her big win just over a year ago, discusses all of the wins that Democrats have had in Albany this past year, and also what's next on her legislative agenda. Alessandra, you just had an anniversary a year ago. You defeated the king of the IDC, Jeff Klein. Can you explain to us, for somebody who might be listening and uh, doesn't know what the IDC was, what was the IDC? Absolutely. First of all, I just want to say thank you for having me on. um, This is like the beginnings of my entire campaign happened in the invisible Westchester office, if you can remember. I do. It was February, and you came in, and and you talked to us, and you're like, you know, I'd really like to take on Jeff Klein, and we're like, that's fabulous. Let's let's hear your ideas. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, and to be really fair, it's because of those conversations that it, it was all inches, so every inch mattered, and it got me and all of us able to win all of these races. So the IDC, it's so, it's so um, it's an interesting term. I feel like I'm going to be saying this word for the rest of this, this acronym for the rest of my entire life. <laughs> so right. My last breath is very funny. So the Independent Democratic Conference um, was, it was, it no longer is. Yes, capital um, W-A-S. Yes. That's right. <laughs> was a group of eight Democrats, including my predecessor, whose name was Jeff. His name is Jeff Klein, um, and he was the founder or the creator of the IDC, the Independent Democratic Conference. And in 2009, when the Democrats gained control of the Senate, which was an incredible win, um, Jeff Klein, who wanted to be the leader of the Democrats, was not chosen to be the leader. And so instead of staying with the conference and continuing to caucus with them, he broke away from the Democrats and started to caucus with the Republicans. And the effect of that was that he took enough members of the Democratic conference with him that it gave the Democrats a minority in a year where they had won the majority. Right. Uh, knowing what I know now and, and having been in Albany for you know the first session, Thinking about what that would have been like if somebody had broken away and taken some of our members out of the conference to create a minority after everything that we all did to work so hard to get a majority would have been totally infuriating and honestly, it's very, very dramatic because when you think about the dynamics of Albany, it, it really puts a light onto that. So this went on for gosh, um, seven years, seven or eight years, mm-hmm. and the net effect of this was that the Democrats stayed in the minority, the Republicans had a majority, because they had to vote with these rogue turncoat Democrats, and perhaps most significantly, the legislation that so many New Yorkers voted their elected officials into office for was never passed. So things like the three maps for immigrants and, and undocumented immigrants to get higher education, things like the Child Victims Act, which allowed for victims of child sexual abuse to be able to go to court and, if they chose, to um, sue their abuser, um, consumer protections and women's health and the Reproductive Health Act, transportation issues, veterans issues, senior issues, labor issues. I mean, you could just go down a list of hundreds of bills that didn't even get it to get onto the floor, let alone onto an agenda, to be able to pass. And this year, um, as a result of 
being just crying. As a result of knocking out so many of the other members, with the exception of two members of the IDC, um, who are no longer are members of the IDC, but are now still part of the Democratic Conference. Um, we were able to pass hundreds of pieces of legislation, but to be perfectly honest, the hardest part was communicating to the public what actually was going on because so many people did not know what the IDC was. And that is where individuals and groups like Indivisible were such a huge part of our success here because the phone calls and the door knocks and the, the postcards collectively were, were so incredibly impactful that we created almost like um, an amphitheater of but any symphony of voices that really carries across counties and across the boroughs and in such a way that everybody really started talking about the IDC. You know what the IDC is? You know what's going on here? And when people realized that there, there were these Democrats that were pretending to be Democrats that when they went to Albany were Republicans and we were in the aid of Donald Trump, it made people infuriated. Right. So that was really a huge part of of our ability to break through to people who thought that these leaders were actually doing good for them. It connected the dots for people. Yeah, and, and there was just, there was a lack of awareness. I mean, and when you would talk to people about that, they'd be like, excuse me? <laughs> you know, what? What's going on? So, but your win helped usher in a sea change in Albany. You know, Democrats finally were able to rightly take control. Andrea Stewart-Cousins became the majority leader. The balance of power shifted. You know, what legislative wins? There were so many, but what in your mind are the top wins and the most, you know, important ones that you were able to pass through? Okay, so let's start from the top. So we had probably the strongest set of rent regulations passed um, in the history, I think, of New York State, where so much of the predatory practices of landlords and real estate developers that had been going on for years, um, we were able to eliminate them and to make it so that renters and individuals in New York who wanted to rent, potential renters, um, were protected and that they were not at the hands of a landlord who just could raise rent, you know, three times the amount that that person came in paying. So it was a huge, huge, huge win and we're still actually hearing about it and I think that um, it will have long-lasting effects for a very long time. Under immigration, we were able to pass the Dream Act and um, the Green Light Bill. I mean, this was, the the Dream Act was a bill that on the surface doesn't seem so controversial, but became controversial because people thought, well, if you give undocumented immigrants the money to be able to go to college, then you're taking away from other children from going to college. The amount of money that that is given was $20 million. That is what was allocated. And it's such a small amount when you look at the billions of dollars in our state budget every single year. And then when you also look at the history of what New York is, which is a place where people from all over the world come to have a better life, to give their family a better life. So the Dream Act was a huge success, and that was a bill that had been pending for 10 years. Um, the Green Light Bill, which gave undocumented immigrants the ability to have a driver's license. Another incredibly controversial bill because so many individuals believe that this was a pathway to citizenship, which, by the way, it's not. And even if it was, that's something that I would still be in favor of. But for a lot of people, this was um, really a linchpin. But we were able to pass that bill. I mean, LGBTQ community from banning con- 
conversion therapy, which when you tell people that, uh, for adults, I should say, banding conversion therapy for adults, when you tell people that, um, it makes them wonder how we, even in the state of New York, had a conversion therapy, but we did pass something called GENDA, which is the Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act, which provides protections for individuals of the trans community because there was no protection if there was a hate crime against somebody who was uh, trans. That is, that is a huge um, area of the law that had a gap that we see lots of different crimes um, against these specific individuals, and so now they finally have protection, criminal justice reform, um, discovery, and bail. I mean, it, the Reproductive Health is. Act, right? Because that was that's something exactly, you talked about, exactly right? right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Explain and to I, us what that is. I, I'm sorry? Oh, explain to us what that is for people who might not be aware of what RHA is. Oh, the Reproductive Health Act, yes. So the Reproductive Health Act is a bill that codified into law Roe v. Wade. Um, in the state of New York, um, the protection, quote-unquote, for abortion happened before the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade. And so in New York... When you looked up abortion, it only appeared in the penal code, which is the criminal code. And so it basically was under that category. And New York State never took a, a, a stand or a step forward to codify the law Roe v. Wade. But if, for example, at the federal level, Roe v. Wade was overturned, individuals in the state of New York would still be protected under that law. We finally did that this year. We also passed in that category the Comprehensive Contraception Coverage Act to expand. Um, access to certain contraception for individuals. We also passed gun safety measures, passing something called the ERPO, or what's referred to as the red flag law, so that individuals who harm themselves or harm, well, harm others can have their guns taken away from them, which, I mean, common sense, this is what we're trying to do at the federal level, but New York is finally able to do that. Um, and the list honestly goes on and on. It's a laundry on. list. It really is. I mean, it's so <laughs> it's so long. It's amazing, actually. And I don't want to just read a list to you, but I will just say one last thing because I think that this is, this is a huge part of um, what I want Albany to do is are the sexual harassment hearings. So for 27 years in the state of New York, there were no there were no hearings on sexual harassment in the workplace. And when I brought this up as something that I wanted to do. It was met with lots of fear and really just like a slow down kind of mentality. And I kept on it. And we were able to have the first hearing in February, the second hearing in May, collectively totaling 24 full hours of hearing of sexual harassment in the workplace. Wow. And we didn't just stop there. We had we had the ability to then take what we learned from all the testimony from experts and from survivors, including those from the Sexual Harassment Working Group, who played a huge role here, and we had an omnibus bill that provided significant protections for individuals who were experiencing harassment in the workplace, and perhaps one of the biggest um, wins of this was that the standard by which someone had to meet in order to say, okay, yes, um, you can hold that the person who harassed you can be held accountable because you've met the standards of the facts and you've proven the facts are true and you've had your witnesses and everything uh, lines up. The standard was severe or pervasive. So, so what had happened to you in the workplace had to be severe or pervasive wow. for a judge in the state of New York to hold the individual who's being accused accountable. That standard is crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. It's yeah. such a high hurdle. And so we were able to lower the standard, 
to the level that is going on in, or the level that's um, currently held in New York City, which is uh, petty slights or trivial inconveniences. And now it will be much more fair, let's just put it that way, for an individual to come forward and to say, okay, here's what happened to me. I'm going to, if I choose, go to court. And standard is one that can be met with these facts. And it will deter that kind of behavior in the workplace. No, there's so much, and it just it speaks to the energy. It speaks to the energy and the difference that you know this kind of leadership change bring brings in Albany. But you yes. can't get everything done all at once. So, what going no. into the next session is left? What's important to you going forward? So, I want to say that, that on the point that you just made, I, I think I went into Albany this year thinking, well, I'm one of 15 new members. to have. <laughs> Trust me. So another thing um, that is on my agenda for next year is a bill that I'm working on with the AARP, who is actually going around the country to different state legislatures um, and trying to pass a series of five different bills. I have one of those five bills, um, and basically what the bill is is addressing something called pay-to-delay deals, which 
is basically um, deals between pharmaceutical companies and generic brand companies, whereby a pharmaceutical company will say to a generic company, please withhold from putting that generic prescription or, or, or drug onto the market um, for X amount of time so that ultimately they can make more money on the um, designer or luxury drug. Um, and the result is that individuals who can't afford that pharmaceutical price of that drug are not really able to get access to that generic drug because of this delay. So what this bill will do will force this pharmaceutical company to close the deal to the attorney general so that there's transparency in, in these deals and that we can raise awareness around this and really try to deter and stop these pharmaceutical companies from entering into these really unconscionable contracts with the generic companies. What is the biggest problem in Albany? Do you think it's the influence of special interests or is it something else or a collection of things? That's a good question. I think it's definitely special interests for sure. I think when, you, when I look at how I, I got into this seat, I feel so fortunate. I, can't, I cannot ex- express that enough um, to have been able to get there without having to go through the quote-unquote traditional channels, right? So whether it's even even the Democratic Party, and here's the thing, I'm a Democrat, I'm a progressive, I'm very proud of that, I'm very proud to be part of this party, but even by going, even getting to your seat by way of a party, the, the, the issue becomes a beholdenness, even if you don't think there's a beholdenness, right? Uh-huh. So I think that the... The, the issue is that I think people who get to their seats and get into that room and we're all together, the different methods of getting there definitely show up in conversations because certain things won't be said or certain stands will be taken or people, certain people or groups won't be called out because they feel that they would be betraying the individuals who got there or they would feel like they would, they would lose their power because those individuals would then turn against them and try to get them out of that seat. But there's this real fear of like losing your seat or losing whatever it is because you're being honest or being, you know, taking a stand for something that is so obviously uh, the right thing to do, but is unfortunately not accessible for everybody. And I think that that at the end of the day is, is the biggest problem. And when you look at how we can eliminate that, public financing of elections and removing money out of politics is the way. There mm-hmm. is no other way because mm-hmm. money is the way that people are able to spread their message and able to reach the voters. And so when you're on your way and you don't have the ability to do that, and then here comes a group and says, we'll give you, you know, we'll max out a check for you, or here's another group that will max out a check for you. And then you get there and you realize, oh, shoot, those people who gave me that money, you know, I don't really align with them on everything. Is this going to be a problem? Is this going to be an issue? And for some, it is. And you can see it that it holds them back. And so... The ability to take that huge influence of money out of politics will change the dynamic of our state. It will change the dynamic of how we lead. And I think it's really one of the only ways that we can have an incredible impact to be able to prevent this from happening um, over and over again. And also, that we don't have to wait a generation um, to have new energy in the room, which clearly plays such a huge So that being said, there's a commission that's looking at uh, campaign finance reform. What do you want to see come out of that commission? Well, the first thing I would like to see is the um, elimination, at least, of 
fusion voting having anything to do with this commission. I mean, it's totally ridiculous at this point, and we all, I think, can point to why is fusion voting even in this public financing commission. Explain what fusion, uh, Alessandra, sorry to interrupt you, but explain what fusion voting is for people who might not understand fusion voting. It's also my understanding that it's constitutionally protected. I was at the hearing in, in New York City, and you know that was the one thing that people made a point to bring up over and over and over again. Yes, I think that's, I think that that's exactly, exactly right. So we'll see what happens with that. I think a lot of us are raising our voices to say that this is something that shouldn't be touched here. This is something that needs to be addressed. There should be a different type of commission or an entity dealing with this, but nonetheless, so the Public Financing Commission, which I have to be very honest for anybody listening, was not something that I actually um, supported. I don't particularly think that commissions are the right way to go when it comes to dealing with these very big issues. We also did a commission for congestion pricing in the budget this year. Mm-hmm. And really what that means is that a commission is a grouping of individuals that the governor would have two appointees, the Speaker of the Assembly, the Minority Leader of the Assembly, the Minority Leader of the Senate, and then, of course, the Majority Leader, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, has her pick for this commission. And they come together and they are going to tackle public financing of elections. And the goal is to have a matching system in the state of New York, very similar to what's happening in the city of New York. And that would mean a six-to-one matching or eight to one matching, mm-hmm. um, which is what the city has now. So that if you're you donate five dollars, then it would basically not just be five dollars, it would be five times whatever the matching amount is. Ultimately reducing the amount of influence that any specific individual or group can have because there's also a cap on the amount of money that can be given. So and it reduces the cap. Um, we are in the current initial stages of this, although there was already one hearing. There will be another hearing in October, which I actually will be attending, and I will be um, testifying 
great. It's very hard. It's very complicated, and it's very political. So now, next year uh, is an election year, and uh, <laughs> are you worried? Right. So, so um, you know, the members of the legislature are going to be up for re-election. Are you worried that these federal races are going to overshadow state races? And what is your pitch for people getting involved in trying to help? You know, you guys, uh, Democrats, retain control of the state senate. So, great question. Okay. I am not worried that the federal races will overshadow the state races in the state of New York, primarily because one of the other things that we did this year, thank God, was election reform. So, having election reform in the state of New York was a massive win because we finally, in fact, we were the last state in the country um, to consolidate primaries. What does that mean? It means that the federal primaries and the state primaries will both be in June now, which is huge. Okay, so this is, this is a huge step forward now. Right, and it seems so yeah. simple. Right, <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. There is, I mean, we all, I think, now are coming to realize or learn, right, that we're one of the only states where we all hold a presidential primary in a different month, so in New York it's in April. Okay, so the April primary will be for the presidential candidate um, for president. And that's still, I think, because of the excitement around what a presidential election season brings, I think people will be in a, in a bigger or better habit of voting. But even if they're not, here is another thing that we did that will actually allow for all of these races to get the significant amount of attention and also um, commitment and participation that they should have, which is that we have early voting now. So now in the state of New York, the 10 days preceding the election, people will be able to vote. And that is also huge because we know that on election day, so many people will have to work or they'll have to find type of care and perhaps they can't, or they'll just make it, they'll just miss They'll just miss the polls closing. And so we want to make it that it's, uh, it's an accessible system for everyone. And that was something that we 
I think um, very much goes in line with having at least as many people voting and having their voices heard as possible. I do think that um, next year is going to be an interesting year in terms of the issues that we take up, at least in, in the legislature in New York, because usually on an election year, it's not, you don't really do lots of controversial things. And right. Or the, you know, the goal of keeping a majority or keeping your, um, keeping your power center strong. Um, but still, that said, there are a lot of things that we can do that are not necessarily controversial, but are just the right things to do. So uh-huh. when you think about the budget, which happens every single March, I mean, the budget pattern was one of the most absurd experiences of my entire life. And that would be because, (laughs) of course, we'll probably have to do a whole other podcast about the budget because, yeah, okay, we'll do another podcast about the budget. But it's complicated and they're able to do, right? I mean, uh, let's be clear, the governor is able to do to bring about a lot of legislation through the budget process, not through, yes, right. Which is super unusual. Which is the podcast. Right. So I would love, I would be happy to talk about that with you all day long. Great. Well, let me, can I just ask one last yeah, question? Um, so because next year is an election year, if other people are inspired by you and other freshman lawmakers and people who, who are running for office, what would be your advice to them? Run. Run, participate, get involved, do whatever it is, whatever you are called or compelled to do, do that thing. Because if every single person heeded that call, or that whisper that's, that's calling to them, right? we would see a whole different state. We'd see a whole different country. And, you know, the idea that you're just one little person and you can't imagine making change, that, that's a fake story. That's not real, right? Like, that's, a, that's a made-up idea or belief. What's real is that you as one individual are so powerful beyond measure that your participation can have such a significant impact that you could change. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You were not afraid of Jeff Klein, and I give you so much credit for that. Alessandra, the Kingslayer, thank you. <laughs> That's who you are to me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much, and I'm so glad that you're doing this so that the word gets spread to so many more people. And we're so thankful for, you know, all that you're doing up in Albany. Take care. Thank you. I'm going to do it without you. Bye-bye. This has been Indivisible Westchester, the podcast. Find us at indivisiblewestchester.org, on Facebook, Twitter, and also Instagram. Most importantly, keep resisting.